Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 198. As we creep up to the 200 mark, I would love your feedback in the form of a review in Apple Podcasts. So if you are enjoying this podcast, please rate and review me there. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts right now or on your phone's app, just scroll down, hit that five-star button because I know that's what you're thinking, and leave your words in the form of a review because the more you rate and review, the more others discover the Bossed Up Podcast. Thank you in advance for your support. You are the reason I record this. You're the reason we do this. So today on the podcast, I'm excited and, and frankly a little nervous <laughs> because... We are talking about food and body image, which are just kind of like, I don't know, trigger happy topics, right? Like who has a great relationship with their body? Who has a great and perfect relationship with food in this world that is so messed up when it comes to how we, uh, the messages that we receive about what a woman's body should look like. And I just think that there's so many of us who struggle with I don't want to say disordered eating necessarily, but stress-related eating or eating that sometimes leaves you feeling like, oh, I regret that choice. That was an emotional choice. Maybe I was masking a negative emotion or, or trying to numb out from a negative emotion by eating that thing. And then there's a part of me that's like, eat the damn donut, girl. Like, I don't care. You know, like we live in a world that's too restrictive and too obsessed with every calorie. So there's a lot of ambivalence that I'm bringing to this conversation. And fortunately for all of us, there is an expert on the line with us today who's going to help unpack those, those gray areas and clarify for us the line between not so healthy eating versus truly problematic eating. And what we as busy professional women especially can learn to take our power back, to feel a sense of agency and control over the choices we make and the way that we fuel our bodies and minds to be sustainable in everything that we do, work and life, as it relates to food and nutrition. So buckle up. If you have a strong response to this episode, I am inviting your feedback, right? I am always here to learn and listen. And I have to admit, there really wasn't enough time to get into every single issue on this one episode. So hopefully we can do another and explore different angles of nutrition, food, stress, and stress eating in a future episode as well. So I'm so glad for you to meet Tessie Tracy, who is joining me on the podcast today. Tessie is a certified eating psychology 
and mind-body nutrition coach. She helps people, mostly women, break through unwanted habits and negative beliefs with food and body so we can all create sustainable and empowering lifestyle practices with nutrition, fitness, and body image. She was a college athlete. And she has her own history with not so productive or not so healthy eating habits that she'll share with us today. And she has some really great tips for all of us who want to be goal-oriented in our nutrition without becoming obsessive or too restrictive or just feeling lousy about ourselves along the way. Tessie, we are so delighted to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm delighted to be talking to a Colorado woman back from LA recently, which is delightful. But I want to also give a little context. So we met just a few weeks ago, right? At yeah. a bossed up life tracker planner, goal-oriented new year kind of psychology 101 on goal attainment, right? Yes. You gave an amazing workshop on sustainable success and so many of your tips like hit home for me and I just had an immediate connection with you. Oh, I'm so delighted to hear that because that was like, I love whenever we can bridge the gap between psychology and being really practical, right? With setting ourselves up not to disappoint ourselves, not to feel shame, not to feel guilt, but to actually strive and allow our ambition to peacefully coexist with self-care. Now, one of the tenets here at Bossed Up is that work love and wellness are connected. And I talk a lot on this podcast about work. And I, I realized when speaking with you and hearing more about your story, man, we have not tackled this issue at all. We barely talk about wellness issues um, when it comes to nutrition. So give our listeners just a little background in terms of how you got into the work that you do and what you focus on with your clients. Yeah. And I love that connection with the work and love and uh, wellness because really all main areas of life that we're all kind of seeking to improve ourselves on, they're all connected anyways. Right. <laughs> and how totally. we show up in one area is often how we're showing up in other areas. So yeah, it's all relevant. How I got into the eating psychology field, it actually sparked my interest in it sparked with my own challenges that began in high school. So I actually, when I was 17, I lost someone really close to me. Um, he passed away and I grew up in a small town. He, We had broken up, but he was my boyfriend and my best friend and my confidant. And the teenage me had like no idea how to deal with that. And I actually developed kind of like a binge eating behavior. And I, ha I didn't even know that term at the time. I just knew that I would kind of like wake up in the middle of the night and go eat some ice cream and then like not remember how much I ate in the morning and just like see the wrappers. So everything kind of came to a head when I was 25. I decided to do a bodybuilding competition because mm -hmm. I was a lifelong athlete. You know this story. <laughs> awesome. You were a college athlete as well, right? So I describe right. it as like I kind of had sports withdrawals and I actually hired coaches um, to do a bodybuilding wow. competition. I call it my quarter life crisis. So I trained for five months. <laughs> I got in really good shape. I actually won the entire show. However, wow, that extreme and and again, people were all individual, right? So my already right. kind of relationship with food coming up against that really strict 
you know, lifestyle kind of exploded when I was done with the show. And we can kind of relate this to maybe we've all tried to reach a goal and, and we kind of did an all or nothing mentality. And then at some point it's not sustainable and we kind of like backtrack the other way. So that's when I, you know, coming out of that, I didn't know how to get off the strict diet. I was like depressed. I started to get really negative body image and I was kind of like, my mindset was kind of strange. So that really, that's when I got into not just like personal training and and coaching, but I also then got certified in eating psychology. So that what that does and what I do now is it takes into account not just, hey, let's take a look at what you're eating or what you're doing for exercise, because that's the stuff, the information side of it, that's we find conflicting experts saying different things, or we can Google something and we can know what to do. But the other part of the equation is that psychology part. It's who are you as an eater? Who are you as a mover? Um, Mm. And come up with a more personalized plan for someone to create a really positive relationship with food and body and a balanced approach to fitness and lifestyle. Yeah. That's so interesting. I feel like in today's culture, especially where wellness fads are very trendy and wellness, like everyone online is some blogger. You know what I mean? Like I'm some blogger, but the wellness blogging especially kind of makes you easily susceptible to seeing this false perfect picture into everyone else's life. And I think the wellness space in particular can lead to some really troubling issues related to body image, but also I think I have strayed from talking about food on here because it is such a sensitive subject for people, right? Like food in particular, what I hear you saying, it's not just the nutrition, it's not what's going in and how you're exercising afterward, it's your relationship to that food. So can you tell me a little bit about when you say stress eating? I'm like, uh, yeah. I mean, every time I'm in an airport after a 14 hour day speaking at a conference, you know, I love, I love being a speaker, but it's a very exhausting day. I I treat myself with a bag of gummies, Haribo in particular, if anyone else is a specific gummy fanatic like I am, or I treat myself to a box of candy that my husband would be horrified by. He's like, oh my God, I can't believe you can eat. You could put away an entire you know, bag of candy. And I'm like, oh, this is my reward. My dopamine's going off in my brain. So tell me what, let's start with stress eating. Cause I feel like that's so relevant to so many people listening to this. What are some signs of stress eating and what's problematic about it? Yeah. So some signs of stress eating, which sometimes we're not conscious about maybe what the trigger is, but this could maybe help us like figure out and have some awareness around that. But some signs would be, sometimes it is like at a certain time of day. So you can think like, Hey, is it every day when I get home of work? Like maybe it is that the glass of wine that could be a stress response, or maybe it is, wow, I'm kind of like, feel like I'm eating too much at dinner, but it's partially because I'm trying to like decompress from my day. So that can be a sign if you're feeling like you're maybe eating a little more than you were hungry for at a time when you're already tired, you've already used a lot of your energy for the day um, later at night. So uh, those are some signs that it 
is stress eating. Mm. Another sign would be that like when we're stressed or when we're overtired and sleep deprived, the top thing that our (laughs) brain is requesting is carbs. And usually that's in the form of craving sweets. So again, it's not like it's a wrong thing if that's happening to us, but it can be a sign like, hey, you're tired. I'm trying to stay awake. Go get a candy bar. (laughs) Right. So that's kind of a stress slash overtired response. And then it can be problematic because maybe that person who's stressed and they're having some stress eating or emotional eating, they're having other challenges like hey, wait a second, I just started this new job. It is pretty high stress. And what the heck, I just gained like 15 pounds in a few months. (laughs) Or I'm not working out anymore. Or I have low energy. So that's where, you know, stress eating can also, and stress in general can be coupled with other symptoms. Another thing we can see with stress is actually that can almost, I want to say almost be misdiagnosed is digestion issues. So sometimes, and I've had clients who will come to me and it's like a digestion challenge and maybe they've already seen the nutritionist. They've already seen like a, a medical doctor about it and they have this, they have heartburn or they have indigestion or they have like stomach cramps. And the one thing the road hasn't been followed to is, okay, what life event happened when this started? It could be connected to stress at work. It could be connected to stress in a relationship. Or maybe like me, there's some stress when you move across the country or you know, a big life event <laughs> where it's right. like, oh, wow. So one top tip that I give that is almost relevant to all of us as eaters is to slow down when we eat. So there's a concept called rest and digest. And essentially, we can look at now looking again at the science of it. So that psychology is I know I'm emotional and now I'm going to food. (laughs) But the science of what happens when we're kind of stressed. So let's say that means we're eating really fast or we're kind of eating while we're thinking about something else or we're eating standing up or we're eating in a meeting. Well, that sometimes isn't like escapable in today's fast-paced world or maybe in your career. One thing that could be happening if you also have that complaint of, hey, I have indigestion or I feel like I'm gaining weight or I feel like I'm overeating is to practice sitting down and eating because if you just take what what is stress response in the body, right? The primal brain in the body, it's it's any sort of stress, it's to keep us alive. So what's happening is blood's actually going away from our digestive system into the extremities. And so things like digestion, our body's not optimized to digest when we're in any sort of physical stress response. So that can slow down our calorie burning optimization from that meal. It can slow down metabolism. And it can also still leave us hungry because we didn't We weren't sitting with our meal and just having some sort of awareness. So that touches in with our appetite as well. It can actually take almost 20 minutes for like the brain in our head and our enteric nervous system or what's called the brain in our belly to sort of communicate and be like, I'm full. That's why we'll eat really fast. And then all of a sudden be like, oh, like 20 minutes later, be like, oh my gosh, I way overdid it. That's so interesting, right? So my childhood... 
food was our love language. It still is. And it's so, so I have such conflicted feelings about nutrition <laughs> because when I grew up with a family of six in one house, right, I was one of four children, dinner was a competitive sport, right? Like my mom made it look so easy. My my dad's from France. My mom's from Colombia. And they cook the most rich and incredible multi-course, like decadent, delicious meals like it was nothing. And so every dinner hour was a race with your fork. You know what I mean? Like you, there was actually a bit of scarcity implied when there's six of us around the table. You didn't want to miss out on your second helping. So speed was a part of it. But also it was never about how full you were. You know, I was raised with the mentality that a lot of folks I think have heard before, which is, oh, there are starving children somewhere else in this world, so you should clean your plate. It was never about intuitive eating or mindful eating or are you hungry or are you just eating because you are bored? And those are questions that um, a nutritionist I actually worked with in college asked me to think about was on a scale of 1 to 10, before this meal you're about to sit down for, how hungry are you? And then checking in during the meal and after the meal, trying to actually tap into that second brain that you mentioned. And so I guess my, I don't know if there's like a specific question. I guess the tension I feel is when is self-medicating with food really a problem? (laughs) And like, when is it, when is it an okay reward? Because my mom, her love language is feeding us. And I had to explain to her, hey, I'm not hungry. I accept your love. I, I see what you're doing here. I'm actually not hungry. And that's like such a rejection to not sit down and be fed in my mom's household. Yeah. And this is, I actually love this question. I love this example because it's such a beautiful, (laughs) beautiful portrayal. And that image of when you were a kid and food, you know, there was almost a scarcity mentality. I've heard that story or a really similar story to that. And it's something that, that, you know, can carry into adulthood. And maybe for you, it's become this conscious thing that you've also tackled in a way where you're like, well, how do I want to feel about this now? Or how do I want to approach this? Or how do I want to <laughs> maybe have a conversation right. with my mom, even if it feels uncomfortable? And that's kind of where we have to go to it. But sometimes it can be, you know, if we're not kind of working through it as an adult, it can become a real challenge. So one thing, especially with emotional eating and where I kind of went wrong when I was trying to heal but didn't know how is I was trying to force the issue to go away, which we all know usually like, Ah, yeah, yeah. what you resist persists. It usually will just make (laughs) things worse or you'll take one step forward, two steps back. And it's kind of like the one thing that's coming up for me here is the art of allowing. So I still have days where I'll emotionally eat. And one thing I do is I freaking own it. And I'll be like, yep, I'm stressed today. I'm going to go eat some Pop-Tarts. And I know those, literally the Pop-Tarts are the thing that's going to help me feel better. Now, can I have an an inventory of different things that can support me. Like, Hey, let me take a beat, take a breath. Maybe calling a friend will help. Maybe going on a walk will help. Maybe journaling will help. Right? So sometimes it's not about taking the behavior away, but understanding it more. So when it becomes problematic is what you said is when, when it's happening to the point where it it feels like it's affecting your quality of life. Yeah. 
I guess I can see the difference too between like using food to numb a feeling, like to numb pain, to soften the blow of grief, to mute stress for that instant dopamine hit, but not actually dealing with the root issue at hand. Because then you just feel really full and kind of gross and you're like, I have like a sugar hangover is usually how my stress eating manifests because I have such a sweet tooth. And I'll be like, oh, I'm still stressed (laughs) and now I have a bellyache. It sounds to me like you're saying as long as you're being mindful about it and having a little, you know, giving yourself grace and then maybe dealing with the actual problem as opposed to numbing out. People use alcohol and drugs for the same purpose as food, it sounds like. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And when it comes to those challenges that we have, like stress or anxiety, and it's coupled with a behavior that you, you know, you feel like you have like overeating or maybe binging. And I'll, I'll make a distinction here because sometimes like the word binging can be a sensitive word. Yeah. Please yeah. Explain. And I yeah. never like, even after my bodybuilding competition, I, I actually was going to therapy at an eating disorder center and it never resonated with me to label. And this was just for me to say, hey, I have an eating disorder because it's not what it felt like for me. So, but I would say that I was binging. So the difference between something like binging and overeating is a binge is you almost are like out of your body, kind of like blacked out and you don't really know what you're doing. And that sounds kind of scary, but it can still be triggered by uh, stress or triggered as like a coping mechanism. But essentially that's when, you know, you'll hear stories, maybe like someone kind of went back to the trash can and they're like, wow, there's like three boxes of crackers in there. Like, I don't even remember eating all of that. Right. Versus something like emotional or overeating is we're kind of aware of it at the time and the whole time. And we're just like, yep, I'm already full or I know That's my stomach's going to hurt, but I'm going to like eat this anyway. So I wonder also like, is there a correlation between disordered eating and the high achievers that bossed up attracts because we were in a room full of type A people when we met who were there to get their plans organized for 2020 and get ahead of their goals. And there's this like, I've seen like comedic memes about this say things like, I don't have an eating disorder, but I respect the discipline of those who do, which is of course, like not actually that funny. Eating disorders kill people. It's totally not okay. But where is the connection between self-discipline and achievement and being someone who can actually get through a bodybuilding competition, which is, and win it, right? Which is such a achiever-oriented mindset. At what point does it become disordered? At what point, I mean, I don't want to say it problematic because you're saying it when it affects your, your well-being, but when is it lauded in our society and when is it tisk tisked at? You know what I mean? Like it is such a weird it's a weird paradox that we actually really reward discipline in this country, but not too much discipline. Exactly. Yeah. Finding that sweet spot. And one of the top words that it comes down to is control. So they'll say, even with someone who's maybe experiencing a a full, you know, like a clinical eating disorder where they, I've had someone really close to me who actually was in like a live-in center to work through that. And, and with most challenges, whether it's with food or finances or whatever, it's sometimes, uh, the issue is not the issue. So meaning 
if I am having this discipline, there's a reward that comes with that. And there's a sense of accomplishment. And that in itself is not a bad thing. And it's, it is, it's very beautiful. And I actually remember pretty clearly when the line for me was getting crossed when I was um, training. So I was training at first, I, I already had kind of that what we'd say like a sugar dependency, right? And when the diet, I had to clear all sugar out of my system. And I definitely had sugar withdrawals. Like that's a real thing. Yeah. I call it getting off the sugar train. I'm on the sugar train. I'm good as long as I keep on the sugar train. Because once you're on the sugar train, you got to keep that train a a moving. And I like was just running on sugar when I was a vegan, which is like for me, high Mm. carb, high fruit, high sugar diet. (laughs) And then when I get off the sugar train, there is a, there's only one way off. You got to jump and it's not fun. Yeah. (laughs) So that's also a beautiful example of like, the question is, it's how do we find some structure without going overboard into like crazy person land? Yeah. So with something like doing a sugar cleanse or something like that for, you know, for the reasons of gaining more mental clarity or, you know, kind of detoxing the body, that's a beautiful thing. But if you're someone who's already struggling with a body image challenge or like an emotional eating type of thing, it might just make things worse. And I remember I talked to the founder of the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, Mark David, who I trained with, he has a podcast where he actually coaches people on the podcast. And I did a session with him. And one thing that he said to me that I'll never forget is I kind of had asked him, I was like, how do I find my balance? Like, how do I find some structure with food without having that tendency to like go too hard or too controlled or whatever? And he said, you might always need to be conscious of it. So Mm. I think it is the personality type, right? The high achiever. We want the morning routine and the discipline and all of this. So I think the most important thing is also having a practice of experimentation and a practice of reflection. So experimentation can be something like, hey, I am going to try this um, way of eating. Maybe I want to try and this is where I go with the nutrition thing is I don't have an answer. I don't say there is any one diet that is right for all of us because I believe in bio-individuality. And while, of course, eating you know more whole foods as close to their organic source as we can, it's going to feel good in our bodies. Experiment for yourself. And maybe I usually invite people to try a month at a time like, hey, I want to try more paleo or I want to try counting my macronutrients. Then like after that experimental phase, that can take the pressure off. Like a diet can sometimes feel like, oh, it's forever and always. Um, Whereas, yeah, if I'm experimenting, I have a date at which I'm going to look back and reflect and, and honestly try and assess, is this working for me? Is this fitting into my lifestyle? And like with you, what you said, it's like you have this, I can imagine having, you said your dad's from France and your mom's from Colombia. Colombia. Yeah. We, we ate well. (laughs) Yeah. What a rich food experience. And honestly, that's part of our quality of life. Like my parents, I grew up, they had such an appreciation for food and my mom was always had the food network on and we literally 
ate our birthday dinners at like four or five star restaurants. Like I definitely have this appreciation for, you know, good cooking and food. And if that's something that that's so important that it's, it's not something I'm willing to, you know, cut out. Right. And nor should it be. Right. I so agree. And it was so weird for me because when I met and eventually married my husband, Brad, his whole food philosophy just kind of threw me for a loop. I didn't understand his reaction to food sometimes because he grew up in a family where, oh, food is purely for fuel. It's like a completely utilitarian relationship (laughs) to food. And like salt is forbidden. And it was just like, it wasn't that they were so focused on being healthy. It was that they were very practical. And they are a very practical family when it comes to how they relate to food. Whereas for me, it's much more of an emotional Ratatouille-esque dance, you know, and a cultural artistic experience. So it's been funny to find our path forward on food together. Okay. So I love what you're saying. I think you're sharing some really great tips, especially that tip of experimenting on a month-by-month basis. That's the whole philosophy of the Life Tracker Planner. So I'm so, I can now see how you might've been sitting in that workshop thinking, oh yes, this aligns with that concept. So I want to ask about what your thoughts are on society's relationship with emotional eating, because I recently read this past summer, Hunger by Roxane Gay. Have you read it by any chance? Oh, I actually haven't read that. Okay. Put that on your must read list. And for any listeners who haven't, you have to read it. And I think it's one of the bravest memoirs I have ever read because she's just very candid with us as readers about a childhood trauma she suffered that led to an an emotional coping relationship with food. And, you know, she is a clinically morbidly obese woman, Roxane Gay, a woman of color, an outspoken journalist and author. And part of her job and the fact that she's very damn good at it has led her to be quite public. She's very much in the public eye. And what her book really opened up for me was not just how much self-loathing there may be or how problematic your relationship with your own body image might be, but when you are large, right, when you are a, a large person in our society, you are subjected to constant daily degradation from the world around you, a constant reminder, whether it's like how airline seats are designed or the looks that strangers give you. So When you're working on your relationship to food and people are giving you positive reinforcement for perhaps overly restrictive behaviors that are not healthy or tons of negative reinforcement around eating more than what you you feel hungry for, how do you navigate a world that is so fat phobic like ours when it comes to to getting that control back, like you said, about your relationship to your body and your nutrition? that's on the one hand where society is. I'm not going to lie. It's still not a good place. And what's good and important though, is that there are every day more and more voices that people can connect to and are being listened to. And even now magazines like Shape Magazine and uh, Fitness Magazine are 
incorporating. But at the same time, when we look at it as a whole, our varying body shapes and even varying abilities, right? People who maybe have certain features who aren't like the normal human are very underrepresented. One resource I love is she's an Australian woman. Her name is Taryn Brumfit, and she started the body image movement. So she has a wonderful documentary. It's called Embrace. And I highly recommend checking it out. I know she had started it. I think it's available to stream now. How she started it is in different communities. You could actually invite people to a showing of the documentary and it goes through different people with those challenges. So not just a weight challenge, but there's even a woman in it who uh, she has a hormone imbalance and she actually grows a beard. And she got to the point after being bullied and being shut out from society and getting weird looks, she now just lets her beard grow and she still wears dresses and, and rocks her beard. So the, the challenge is though, that word embrace people who feel outcast and don't feel included or are scrolling through Instagram or maybe now TikTok and seeing the self <laughs> I know you talked a lot about TikTok. <laughs> My podcast listeners haven't heard me say a word about TikTok. That is that is insider information. I don't know what you're talking about, but yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's really hard, especially if we're already in that place where we're trying to work on our own relationship with body and with food and all we're seeing are things we're maybe comparing ourselves to. If someone's in that space, the number one thing that can help is starting finding your safe space where you can start to get vulnerable about it whether it is with a coach or with a close friend or with a group, or maybe it's an online group, something like that, because that's like Brene Brown says, right? Once we speak about something we're shameful about, or we feel like no one else is going through, it starts to take its power away. But yeah, last thing that it was just coming up for me is I had a former client actually recently reached out to me and say that his daughters age three and six are already struggling with body image. So that's the other thing I think is possibly important, especially going into the future is starting, starting these conversations at a very young age. Yeah. And also, I mean, we have to work on ourselves if we want the little people around us to know what it looks like to love your body right? Like being unapologetic about saying, no, I love my body. It's not perfect, but look what it does for me is still so socially taboo, I think, to say out loud as a woman. I think it, there was a scene in Mean Girls where all the high school girls were like talking about what they hated about their bodies in the mirror. And then they looked to the Lindsay Lohan character and were like, what do you hate about yourself? Because there's such kind of social pressure to feel shitty about your own body. And then we get surprised that our kids and our little ones learn that behavior too. Like society does a number on all of us. It is a radical act to openly embrace your own body and love your body in the home or wherever <laughs> or publicly, you know? And I think it's Jamil mm -hmm. Jamila who's doing some great work on body positivity yes. on Instagram too and just being radically, radically unapologetically loving your body as it is. And that, I think, is learned behavior we can spread as well. 
Yeah. And this connects into that question of, okay, so I don't want to become obsessed with what I look like or, or, you know, but maybe I have some habits that I do feel I want to change. Or maybe I did go through a life event and I have gained 10, 20 pounds. And I just honestly, it's like, I have a huge body image thing, but I do feel like maybe my body would be happier and more energetic and healthier at a lighter weight. So it's also not, not like taking that away from ourselves. What I hear you saying is like, they're not mutually exclusive, right? Like we can love our bodies where they are and want them to be healthier. And so I guess the question is, what are the first steps that you would recommend someone in that position take to begin a journey of healthier eating habits without the shame and blame and guilt and fat phobic kind of content that society will throw at you along the way? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first things I would suggest is something, well, I don't, you know, preach like, oh, eat this way and only this way. One thing I do teach about is meal timing. So when someone is looking to kind of switch up what they're eating, the first experimentation, if you will, would be to try and go for that three meals a day and maybe a snack. And one reason for that is sometimes when we're, you know, not aware, we don't have a routine around food or we have a routine we want to change, we might be skipping meals or we might not be eating enough. So when we're waking up, our metabolism kind of follows like our sleep-wake cycle in a way where our metabolism's also revving up. So giving it something, you know, in the morning is helpful. And then it peaks midday, which can be a good time to experiment with having kind of a bigger meal. So making that lunch like a 12 to one thirty time. I took you away from the very important topic of meal timing that you were explaining. Yeah. And that's for someone who's like, hey, I never eat in the morning anyways. Like I, if you're looking to just change things up, sometimes, you know, okay, what you've been doing so far then isn't working. Like be open to getting out of that comfort zone and trying it because what happens when we eat, even if it feels like, wait a second, I'm not hungry, we're going to spark our appetite. So don't be afraid of our appetite, when you actually start to feel hungry, just take that as a sign as like, cool, my metabolism's speeding up, my metabolism's turned on. Like it's a good thing to feel hungry. And once you start to get a little more consistent, that's what's gonna happen. You might start to your body will start to have its own alarm clock where your stomach rumbles at like 12 and you're like, cool, time for lunch. So that's something and that will be helpful. And then the bigger lunch also helps because the biggest meal that tends to be, we eat a little too much is dinner and our metabolism. It is slowing down at night where our body through the night, it is designed to not digest. It's designed to kind of detoxify ourselves and, you know, rejuvenate, repair our muscles, all of that. It's not focused on digestion. So that's why sometimes people can experience grogginess in the morning if they ate a lot really late the night before, and they might not sleep that well, or they might start to gain weight. Interesting. So does that relate to the trend that is intermittent fasting? Yes, it it definitely does. So 
give me like the primer on that because I've avoided it because I enjoy eating all the time. So <laughs> tell me, tell me what that's all about. Yeah. Again, the, the first thing that I would say to that is I would only invite someone to even experiment this if they're at an okay place with relationship with food and right. body. And it's not coming from necessarily like a, oh, I have to lose weight to be accepted type of mindset. Right. <laughs> Uh, but to experiment with that, essentially, uh, it is, you know, after about 12 hours, our body can sort of do a reset and hits a point at which we actually might feel a little energy surge or we might feel, or we don't feel it, but our body is detoxing and sort of resetting. So people can experience with intermittent fasting. Oftentimes people will try like a window of 12 to 16 hours. And I do intermittent fasting, but not like religiously or necessarily intentionally. So sometimes it'll be like all I I do like bulletproof coffee where you have the coffee and you blend it with some MCT like coconut oil and butter because it's just delicious. MCT. Yeah. What is MCT? MCT oils. It's essentially like a, a concentrated form of coconut oil. So it's really healthy fatty acids and it's the bulletproof coffee. Essentially, it's not only partnered with like an intermittent fasting lifestyle, but it's also, it can help with clearing brain fog. So it does have its benefits. Oh my God. I feel like I'm the kind of person who, because I'm in a a good place to be clear with my, I think, relationship with food and body right now. I'm, I feel like challenged to give that a try. And yet I can't remember the last time when I went 12 hours not eating anything. <laughs> I am a snack before bed kind of person and eat right when I get up kind of person. So I don't know. I'll keep y'all posted if I choose to play around with that. But that does seem like some next level nutrition. Yeah. It gets into the, okay, I'm going to be very specific about something, you know, like I'm, mm, I'm measuring right. or I'm counting or I'm keeping track, whatever, which, you know, again, it's, that's an individual thing. I personally, since I like went through my healing journey, I did whole 30 once with my fiance and I felt those thoughts coming back. I, and of course it was simply this like, Oh, I can't have this. I can't have that. I can't have this. So all I want is that and this and that <laughs> it wasn't horrible, but it just wasn't like mentally great for me. And that's okay. That's a great teachable moment though. That you know, say you embark on a new nutrition-oriented program because you want to make progress on your relationship with food or your fitness levels or whatever. And then you're two weeks in and you feel like shit all the time because you are just beating yourself up about not being good enough and your relationship to your body image has gone, you know, in the toilet. It's like, how do you course correct from there? You know what I mean? Like, can you can quit, in other words, I think is what we're saying, right? Like, put your mental health in some ways first. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah. And it depends, you know, exactly how you feel. So like when I, I, that's, I love helping people with the goal setting side of it and kind of going into it with an approach and, and having our own definition of health before we even start trying something new. And one way to get zeroed in on that is to focus on the habits. So I love to focus on the yeah. weekly habits. So instead of saying, I want to lose 10 pounds, be like, okay, 
let's focus on how I want to feel. I want to feel strong. I want to feel fit. I want to feel confident. That's great. That's even just saying it, that's a better feeling than focusing on oh a number or this. Um, So when it comes to like a weekly habit, I'm going to say, hey, with my lifestyle right now, this is how much I work. This is my social life. Yeah. Right now, maybe I'm not even working out twice a week, right? So I'm not going to jump in and say, cool, I'm going to work out five times a week. And then, so in that scenario, in the two weeks when I'm like over it and I'm like giving up, (laughs) that's different. Yeah. The science that we're both drawing from is about setting yourself up to feel a sense of progress so that you make even more progress, which I think is so important. And attaching yourself to this goal that's numerical or outcome-oriented, like losing pounds, can set you up to just feel not good enough. When I was in college, you know, I was a college athlete as well. And we gained so much weight during volleyball season because we were packing on muscle. Like my, at some point mid, mid fall, as we were in preseason, all of us couldn't pull our jean pant legs over our thighs because we were training and our thighs were just so muscular. And that's just like, it led so many of us to feel bad. And if you step on a scale, you feel even worse. And these are choices you're making for the good of your sport, for your craft. And so after college, part of my relationship with food journey to getting to where I am now involved just not ever having a scale in my house. No scales needed for this household because to me, you can tell if you're feeling better or not. You can tell how your how your body feels energy-wise, strength-wise, and those are the outcomes that I like to focus on, like you're saying, instead of a number, which can be so depressing. Also, women's bodies change over time, right? Like our bodies fundamentally change over time. And the crazy thing is like the the female body too, especially like with our cycle, like even just our water weight, it fluctuates every day up to like 10 pounds up and down maybe. My cup size. So I am all about that movement to throw the scale out because it is, it's so crazy. It's like, even if we... Are, we would label ourselves, I'm in a pretty good place. We could probably step on a scale and the first thing of our mind is like, oh gosh, what's it going to be? <laughs> sigh. Yeah, I think there's just like a mental sigh. You know, we're just like, oh, that's not what I thought it was going to be or whatever, you know, whatever it is. It's just like, I felt good right until that moment I stepped on a scale. I, it is so rare that I feel better about myself after having stepped on a scale. And so why put yourself (laughs) through it? And I'm not someone who's like in any kind of overweight category. So I can only imagine how triggering it must be for folks whose bodies are not in the averages or normals, although the average in our country now is is by no means, you know, underweight or or in a healthy BMI either. So I don't know. I'm here shrugging my shoulders because, Tessie, I could talk to you about this for like four more hours. (laughs) So I have one last question for you because I've got to wrap this sucker up. This conversation has already gone longer than than usual because what you have to say is so interesting. What is one thing you want all women to know about their relationship with food and their bodies? The first thing that's coming to mind is that everybody else thinks it too. And what I mean by that is I think especially as women, it can be such a default, whether it is, oh, she's killing it in her career or, whoa, she's in the best relationship ever or, wow, she has that banging body. 
And at the same time, subconsciously, we are probably also sharing our highlight reel, if it will, or sharing one image that someone else is thinking those exact same thoughts about us. So I think the more we can open up as women and the first thing to assume is, hey, everyone has their challenges, whether it's challenging thoughts or relationship with food and body, and it's not just me, that that's really helpful. I love that. Thank you so much, Tessie, for your time, for your wisdom. Where can our listeners keep up with you? Yeah, I'd love to connect with anyone. You can find me on my website, which is tessietracy.com. And that's T-E-S-S-I-E-T-R-A-C-Y. And on Instagram, I'm at Tessie Tracy. And yeah, I have like good, you know, you can find these on my website and on my blog and on my Instagram link. I have different, you know, little handouts that help with that sustainable goal setting and even some tools that help with emotional eating. So feel free to reach out and I'd be happy to support. As a reminder, if you want to learn more about Tessie's great work, head to tessietracy.com. That's T-E-S-S-I-E, Tracy with a Y, T-R-A-C-Y.com to learn more. And now it's time for today's boss move of the week. Today's boss move comes in from Kaylee, who writes in the Bossed Up Courage community this little update. She says, I'm so excited to announce that I landed a new job as the head of marketing for a retirement firm. I share this because I've never held a marketing-specific role, know nothing about finance, and still landed the job. It's all about how you spin your skills and highlight what is transferable. They made me an offer. I countered for the first time ever, and it paid off. I landed a job that pays $13,000 more than what I was making. I hope this inspires everyone to push themselves out of their comfort zone. You can do this. Don't hold back. Kaylee, I could not have said it better myself, boss. Congratulations. And thanks for sharing your come up story in the Courage community. You really never know who you're inspiring when you share what your boss move of the week, month, or year is. As we kick off the second month of the new year together, I'd love to hear from you. So share your boss moves either in the Courage community, which is a great place to do it, or call them in and leave your voicemail for us so we can feature your actual voice on this podcast too. Because speaking your truth and speaking in high regard of yourself is something I want to encourage more women to do. And we got to walk that walk if we're going to talk that talk. (laughs) The hotline here is 910-668-BOSS or 2677. Congrats again, Kaylee. And thanks for showing what it means to live like a boss. Alrighty, y'all. That's all we have for you today. I am dying to hear what you think of this topic. I know we are fresh off New Year's resolution season. And so I thought it was a good time to bring up this wellness conversation as it relates to our lives and work lives and fueling our bodies and minds moving forward. What resonated with you? What are you taking away from Tessie's conversation with me today? What is left unresolved? What do you think we have to explore more? What Would you like to hear me dive deeper into on the podcast as we move forward? This show is really made based on what you want. So call in your career conundrums. Call in with your feedback, with your responses, anytime you like. And of course, call in with your boss moves at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. Until next time, keep bossing in pursuit of your purpose. And together, we'll lift as we climb.